democracies require a kind of patriotism. Tyrannies don't particularly need it because they're governed from the top down. But democracies require a kind of civic ethos that makes people feel that they have a stake in this public and common enterprise, especially in our increasingly kind of globalized existence. Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to Keeping It Civil. Today, Josh and I are speaking to Stephen Smith, who is a professor of political science and philosophy at Yale. He was here at ASU on campus to give a Constitution Day lecture, and we had the chance to talk to him about how he wants to defend patriotism from attacks by both the left and the right in his new book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Stephen, let's talk about patriotism uh, and its critics. Let's get there. You have a recent book out, Reclaiming Patriotism in, in an Age of Extremes. And you open the book with a quote by Bellow from The Adventures of Augie March, uh, I am an American Chicago-born. I wonder if you could just talk about how that quote kind of encapsulates the, the argument you put forth in your book. Thank you, Josh. I love that. You know, Bellow has been a favorite of mine over the years. I love his books. The character of Augie March, although he belongs to a very, very different generation than me and very different background, the spirit of Augie has somehow stuck with me. And I, I love the ebullience of that, that opening sentence. I am an American Chicago-born. It does speak to, I think, sort of maybe one of the, the broader themes of the book. You know, Augie takes a kind of pride in his Chicago background, the rough and tumble of the city that he grew up in. You know, it's not an altogether easy place to live in or, I mean, it's again, it's a very different time in place, but it's still still a difficult place to live in, I think. And in a way, being a Chicagoan is, has many of the same problems, but many of the same joys and opportunities is, is being an American, which is also in many ways not an easy place to live in in a lot of ways, but it is also a place of great opportunity and great freedom for for people who to give them a chance to find and discover themselves. And that's what writing the book was for me. In many ways, it was not only a book about America in some ways. It was a kind of journey of exploration for myself. So Augie March was kind of an inspiration for me in that respect. In the book, the focus is, of course, on patriotism, and you're, you're responding in many ways to both the right and the left, both of whom you see as, uh, in one case, forgetting about patriotism, and in, in another case, kind of bastardizing the, the idea. 
and you want to defend this notion of enlightened patriotism. What do you have in mind when you refer to enlightened patriotism? A couple of things. One of the problems with both the left and the right, as you put it, one not just forgets patriotism, but consciously repudiates and rejects it, and the other side distorts and I think corrupts it in some ways, that one of the key features that I argue in the book of American patriotism is that ours is a patriotism of ideas. It's a kind of aspirational patriotism. We are a people of the book, or of the text at least, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, our founding texts. You know, it's kind of in some ways goes back to the Puritan legacy, people who did think of themselves as people of the book. Uh, we don't think of ourselves in quite that way any longer as a biblically chosen people or as Lincoln called it, an almost chosen people. But the textualist character of that focus has remained, I think, ever since. We, we are a, a people of ideas and a kind of aspirational people. And that's what I think is lost on both the left and the right. The left who see patriotism just as a cover for racism, xenophobia, all of the kind of ugliest dimensions of political life. And the right who sees it simply as a way of their embrace of what they call patriotism is a way of distinguishing in and out, ins from outs, and for stigmatizing domestic others. Both of them really fail to understand, I think, what is true and aspirational about the American case. You say that patriotism has to be reclaimed, or in some ways it sounds like it has to be defended. Why? Is this brand of American patriotism you talk about, you talk about being about ideas, about the books, is it too elitist? Is it too stuffy and bookish, this American patriotism that people find it difficult to grasp? Why does it have to be defended or reclaimed? That's a great question. Thanks for that. And it's something I struggled with in writing the book. Partly, one of the arguments I make in the book is that patriotism is something that has to be taught. It's not just something in our DNA. We don't, you know, we're not biologically directed in this way. Patriotism is something we have to be taught. Perhaps people used to be taught in, in some ways. I don't want to just engage in a kind of nostalgia for the past that probably didn't exist. But I do feel that patriotism is something that needs to be taught in schools and it needs to be, I don't mean by that we need to have a course called patriotism, but we do need to have a, a deeper sense of what the American experience is about. I don't feel that high school students get this and I'm pretty sure that most college students don't get this today. Uh, a deep immersion or at least some kind of immersion in not just our political theory or our political, understanding our political institutions, but by our, our literature, by our uh, religious life. This, this, is what, this is what shapes, shapes ourselves. And I do think the, it is – I don't want to think of it as stuffy or just too intellectualist. But I do think – Every form of patriotism is a, a kind of exploration of who we are as a people and who we are is something shaped by our letters, by our language, by our music, all kinds of things. This is what I also refer in the book as ethos patriotism. I say American patriotism is both a dimension of logos, using that Greek term to 
describe it as kind of a patriotism of ideas, a patriotism of logos, but it's also a patriotism of ethos, of our habits, our manners, our language, our, our way of life in a kind of broader sense of the term. So that's how I, I want to say that we need to think of it as embodied in our history and to take a deeper dive into the way those ideas are immersed in our, our history as a part of American patriotism. One of the things I thought was kind of amusing in your book was that you said that the book was going to be a provocation to your colleagues. And this relates a little bit to the point you just made. Do you think the fact that writing a book about patriotism is provocative or counterintuitive to political philosophy professors at Yale, do you think that's part of the problem with contemporary American patriotism, that it's not being taught at universities in the way that it should be? That's absolutely true in my view. I mean, and I forget if I said it in the book or just have mentioned it in in passing elsewhere, that one of the secret pleasures I enjoyed uh, in writing the book was when people were asking, would would ask me, you know, what are you working on? I'd say, oh, I'm writing a book defending patriotism and looking at the expression of kind of, you know, skepticism, disbelief, occasional shock and horror at the idea that one of their colleagues was, was daring to do this. But, you know, Yale's kind of a cool place, so nobody's going to, again, seriously sort of call you out for this. But no, I think it it probably is a controversial thing to do on a college campus to have somebody write a book defending patriotism because the dominant ideology, if you can use that kind of Marxist language, the dominant ideology on campuses is very much a kind of combination of a sort of trans-political globalism. You know, we're all citizens of the world. On the other hand, this kind of micro-affinity groups uh, associated with little, you know, whether they're ethnic or little, little enclaves of, you know, group affinities on campus. We have everything but sort of idea that uh, the nation state and a kind of patriotic identification with your own country might be something uh, worthy of, of doing or worthy of holding. Along those lines, you you criticize this idea of cosmopolitanism throughout the book. Uh, at one point, you call it a joyless institution. At another point, you say the cosmopolitan ideal seems to leave little room for a sense of awe or for the sacred. And I get the sense that you think campuses are kind of inculcating this cosmopolitanism to an extent. I imagine most Yale students do probably think of themselves as students of the world, citizens of the world, and want to be participants in in shaping that world. Why is that a why is that a danger? No, look, there's something in many ways, there's something admirable about it. I mean, Yale you know, increasingly, you know, we were talking earlier about how students have changed, like like many universities. Yale, in in the time that I've been here, has become increasingly an international university. Students from all over the world, and that's that's a good thing. I, I think that's a good thing, not not just for them, but for our American students to have close contact with students from very different places and different experiences. Of course, we are increasingly faced with problems of global reach, <laughs> to say nothing of a global pandemic and climate change. These are truly global issues. So there is, there's, you know, in a certain sense, nothing wrong and something very 
right about realizing that our situation as Americans is increasingly tied in with the fate of, of other peoples. That's a reality. And yet, we live in a world of states. We live in a world of nation states. I'm in that way kind of a Westphalian. I, I believe that uh, for all of the problems, we, that the world of states that we have is the, the way that we shape our global identity. And the idea that we're going to somehow transcend that world to create a kind of stateless universe of you know, free trade and free travel between peoples and no, no, no borders, the kind of John Lennon-esque world of, you know, imagine there are no countries, you know, it's easy if you can or something like that. This is just misinstructing people as to the nature of the world that we live in. States remain the basic unit of political life. I would also say that democracies require a kind of patriotism. Tyrannies don't particularly need it because they're governed from the top down. But democracies require a kind of civic ethos that makes people feel that they have a stake in this public and common enterprise, especially in our increasingly kind of globalized existence. Let me press on this idea a little bit. I want to, I want to do that by way of an example you use in the book. You talk about the French national soccer team. And you say, you may be a fan of the team. I'm paraphrasing here. You may you know, be a, an enormous fan of the team, love watching the team, but you can't really appreciate the success of the team to the same extent as a French national. You can't take pride in the team to the same extent that a French national. And I just thought that was an, a, an interesting and ironic example in some ways because the French national team is in some ways an embodiment of cosmopolitanism, yeah, right? True I mean, enough. Many yeah. other players mm. are from Arab nations, African nations, and so it kind of speaks to how kind of muddied all of this can get, this distinction between a patriotic national identity, not to be confused, we should say, with nationalism, but a patriotic identity and cosmopolitanism. In practice and in institutions, as you talked about at Yale, these things, the, the, the line between the two, I think, can become fuzzy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a nice point about the, uh, the about the soccer team. Yeah, these teams, these uh, national teams, are increasingly diverse and draw people in them from all over the world. And yet, at least for the time when they're on the field, they are embraced as the national team, regardless of where its individual members are from. So it's a kind of the teams represent almost a kind of embodiment of a kind of e pluribus unum, you know, out, out of many, one. And that out of people's diverse places of origins, they coalesce for the purpose of, of their national team. So I, I like that image. I wish I had actually thought about that and you could have used it in the book. Another point that you mentioned, speaking again specifically about France, I did note a hint of Francophilia in the book, potentially, <laughs> uh, is that you feel that despite your efforts to learn the French language, you'll never ever understand it as well as a, someone who lived in France, grew up in France, that you'll never feel like a Frenchman really could about diverse things. Where does this leave immigrants in your story of 
if we reject cosmopolitanism, if you can't be a citizen of the world, and because you didn't grow up somewhere, you can't feel like a real patriot, where does that leave immigrants who move to another country? They might have to learn another language. Are they condemned to some sort of no man's land between the worlds uh, where they're neither a citizen of the world or a real citizen or patriot of their new home? That's a really interesting question. I was just having a conversation yesterday with a colleague, an Italian colleague. We weren't talking about patriotism, but we were talking about the fact that her partner is Italian, who's just become an American citizen and voted for the first time in the in the mayoral New York City mayoral election. You know, going through the what I always smile at when I when I hear the term the quote naturalization process. You know, he's become naturalized now, and uh, inevitably, first generation Americans, while in some ways their hold on the culture in some ways may be a little tenuous in ways just because they haven't been brought up here. They're, they are, of course, as we all know, recent Americans are among the most patriotic citizens. And there is a distinct falling off in the second and then, you know, the third generations. People who come here, they find themselves incredibly thankful for the opportunity to come and be a part of this enterprise. So I think in many ways, Being a new American or being an immigrant is something unique about, I mean, every every country has immigrants. Uh, I mean, nearly every country, some exceptions. But I think there's a, because in many ways we are a nation of immigrants, immigration is not something new to us or something odd to us. Uh, The fact that we are a nation of immigrants we have a history of welcoming people, and I think far from making the immigrant a second-class citizen, uh, the immigrant we we feel and and Lincoln. I, I want I, there's some wonderful passages from Lincoln. I haven't spoken about Lincoln because he's a key figure in my chapter on enlightened patriotism. Lincoln did so much to sort of welcome the immigrant to the table. That was an extraordinary thing. And I think it's one of the the beauties of American life. Some years ago, there was a debate, I recall, at Columbia University about the, the canon and, you know, what makes up the, the great books and in the, in the tradition in this country. And I wondered, you know, who decides, I mean, this is a funny question to ask among professors, because we decide when we design our syllabi. But, uh, who decides what the foundational texts are? I mean, you, you, you mentioned Lincoln, Lincoln's speeches. You mentioned in the book, The Federalist Papers and Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And, you know, these are, in some ways, this is a very traditionalist canon. Uh, we now include Frederick Douglass's autobiography there. But, you know, not to, not to go back to Saul Bellow, but, I mean, you think of Bellow, you think of Philip Roth, you think of them saying there's a broader American tradition here that goes beyond, right, some of these kind of traditionalist uh, texts and people's histories are unique and those histories should be acknowledged. So I guess I'm just wondering how do we know, you know, what falls within this tradition that allows us to reclaim patriotism, what comprises that, and who decides that? I I think you put it in the book, I think you're quoting someone, who teaches the teachers? Yeah. Do you remember who said that? Not off the top of my head, no. It was Karl Marx. Okay. There is one of his best lines. That's a hard question to answer. And I think, you know, there, there has been, and I think in many ways, a very healthy 
opening up of the canon of what counts as the the central the central texts of a liberal education which is somewhat different thing from the central american texts for you know thinking about american patriotism i don't think you need for example to be a student of plato's republic necessarily in in order to be an american patriot so liberal education and what constitutes a liberal educated mind is somewhat different from the kind of civic education we think of as informing a kind of enlightened patriotism. Maybe they're connected. I think they are, but that would be a complicated story. I do think there's been certainly an opening up of, of the canon, and that's been a, a healthy thing. You, you mentioned Frederick Douglass. I'm doing a course next semester on the themes of statecraft and statesmanship. And I have a week devoted to statesmanship as reform. And I have Douglas, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Martin Luther King as examples of reformers. They probably, I, I'm sure that a generation ago, you would not have found those names on a in a political theory class. They might have been seen in a niche course on, you know, African-American political thought or the women's movement. But just in political theory, you would not have found those names. And they're increasingly part of our canon. And I think that's been a a very good thing, the kind of diversification of of our identity, of who we are, and, and a recognition of the important contributions that different peoples have made. But one of the wonderful things about teaching Douglas is he was a great American patriot. He was a great American patriot. That's that's what's so rich about his his writings. He he saw what was best in America. He saw what was deeply wrong with it. But he always measured that against what was best in America. He didn't use it as a ground, as so many seem to do today, to reject America, to reject the the very idea of America, to think that America is just indelibly tainted and stained with racism and with bigotry. That was not Douglas's thinking. He saw these as, as stains, but he, he saw them as in many ways in contradiction with, with what was best in us. And he never lost that sense of optimism, I think, about what America could become for him and his people. Another argument you're trying to make in the book is that patriotism is different from nationalism. And patriotism is a positive thing, obviously, where you're trying to reclaim it or support it, whereas nationalism you think is not such a good thing. What is the difference between patriotism and nationalism? Many people might think that these are very, very similar concepts. And why is nationalism for you such a bad thing where patriotism is more positive? Good. And I think that's part of the book that I've I've received the most kind of pushback on and and questions about. There was a a line, I forget now whether I cited it in the book or not. It was on Armistice Day, the, the I think it was the hundredth, the centenary of, of Armistice Day, when the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said nationalism and patriotism are the direct opposites or diametrical opposites, something to that effect. Although I, I appreciate the sentiment, that's not quite right as I read the relation between the two. I think that 
nationalism and patriotism grow out of a common core concern, the idea of having your state, your culture, your way of life, having it strong, having it respected, allowing it to have its place in the world, as it were. Uh, And of course, the 19th century saw a whole host of what we would call today as liberal nationalists. Lincoln was in that category, to be sure. Uh, Mazzini in Italy, Gladstone in England. All of these men were what we would call today liberal nationalists. And the disposition is not altogether absent in today's world. There was a very fine book by the Israeli political theorist Yuli Tamir called Liberal Nationalism. And yet, in the 20th century, nationalism, for a range of reasons, seems to me to have taken a wrong turn. And again, it became not so much an affirmation of who we are, but an ideology of resentment, of distinguishing ins from outs. And of course, once that becomes your focal point, distinguishing ins from outs, it becomes the next logical step is to distinguish between fellow citizens, who is in, who is out, who is the true American, who is the enemy of the people, to use the language that we've we've heard so much of of recently. It it becomes a a truly, uh, you saw that in Europe in the mid-20th century, how early in mid-20th century, how that morphed into the languages of anti-Semitism and other things. And we we even hear traces of that again here. I I think of the former, I'm inclined to say, disgraced Iowa congressman Steve King, who, you know, was a self-described American nationalist as well as a self-described white supremacist. The language of nationalism for me has become deeply tainted and I think to some degree unusable in a certain way. And why I wanted, why was it such pains to distinguish patriotism from a kind of, again, a kind of toxic ideology of resentment that feeds on people's resentments and hatreds. Patriotism is an affirmative sense of who we are. It's based on a kind of loyalty to to what we are and what we can become. I've said earlier it was a patriotism of ideas and aspirations. And one of my one of the other heroes in the book, along with Lincoln, was George Orwell, who I think wrote about this during World War II as brilliantly and as beautifully as anyone has ever done so. When he, you know, after spending a stint in the British Imperial Army in Burma. I think it was Burma, uh, when after spending time again as f- famously as a soldier in the Republican cause fighting for the anti-fascists in Spain, you know, working as a day laborer in Paris and London, tells us in his great book Down and Out in Paris and London, he came in, in during World War Two at the beginning of the war to think of himself as a, a rather old-fashioned English patriot. And in these essays began to think about what did that mean? It was apparently not something like for a lot of us. He, he had given much thought to until his own country was under under siege. And he wrote some of the finest words on distinction between, at that point, German national, what would distinguish German nationalism from kind of the English patriotism that he, with which he identified. And I found those texts of Orwell's as well as Lincoln's to be among the most inspiring I came across in, in writing the book. 
I think this distinction is important between nationalism and patriotism as you define it. I think one of the challenges you face, uh, Stephen, is that the source material that the uh, American nationalists rely on so heavily is the same as yours. I think you start the book by referencing the National Conservative Conference. You know, if you read or watch some of the speeches there, you you see the same references you make. You know, it's Madison, it's Orwell, it's Edmund Burke, Montesquieu. What do you say to those folks? You're just reading all of these people wrong? You're offering a, a kind of, you know, incorrect reading of what they represented? Uh, but that seems, you know, again, a challenge for you to to make your case and distinguish it effectively from these these American nationalists. Uh, yeah, that's very much the case. And there are a lot of very intelligent people and some not quite so intelligent who, who participated in that, in that conference. And right, that with deep knowledge of political theory, the history of political thought, and we, we draw on a lot of the same texts. I do think in one sense the answer is in a way – what you just put your finger on, there is a kind of ideological distortion of these texts in my sense being misused, misappropriated for purposes quite different uh, than mine. Yes, I would I would just have to push back on the on their readings and, and their their uses of the text. For example, Edmund Burke even you know, I think the name of Burke is used because he's a he's a name easily identifiable to conservatives. But to invoke Burke and in the, the name of some kind of fortified American nationalism, I think it's just uh, completely distorting of Burke's philosophy. But but you're you're right. No, uh, we do draw on a lot of the same texts and the same figures, but for for quite different purposes. Well, Stephen, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for joining us. We like to conclude by asking our guests for a suggestion, something to read, maybe something that you have found particularly useful on the theme of, in this case, patriotism, civic education. What would be something you'd recommend to our listeners of the podcast to read or recommend to someone else to read on these themes? Thanks for that question. There's so many to choose from or I could think of, but since we were just talking about it a moment ago, let me end with suggesting Orwell's Notes on Nationalism. Great. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. 